Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you all today. Um, If you would please open up to Acts chapter 25, that's where we're going to be today. That's page 934 in the Bible on your row. And uh, happy Mother's Day to all of our moms in the room. Hopefully you haven't gotten tired of hearing that yet this morning. Um, I hope that your morning has been filled with all of your favorite things. And after you go and gorge yourself on chips and salsa at lunch, like a good Texan, I hope that you can go home and put on your bathrobe and sweatpants and be off duty. Some of you guys are like, I wear yoga pants, this is the woodlands. Look, if that's you, put on your yoga pants and rock it. If you're a quiche and, and tea cakes lady, go and do that. If it's, a, if it's a Mother's Day brunch, go have fun. The important thing is that today is about you and we're celebrating you today and uh, we're very excited that you guys are, uh, are here. Um, church, we have great moms here at C3. I, I hope you realize that. The, the moms here at C3, if, if you have been around this group of people at all, this is an incredible group of families. There are incredible moms here who sacrifice for their kids and love their kids and and give up so much for their kids to point them toward things that are right and good and true and to give them hope in Jesus and to serve them well and to make sure that those kids um, are, are well cared for. Um, you give up sleep. You, you sacrifice to be present. And that's not just our, our moms with little ones at home. Um, motherhood, our, our, our moms who've got older kids or kids who are out of the house, um, we see the way that you stay engaged and present in your children's lives, how you've become good counsel and wisdom for them, how you seek to continue to sacrifice so that they would grow and, and become um, amazing uh, young adults or adults with kids. And, and we just, we see that, we appreciate that, and, and we love that about you. Now, for those of you who aren't moms, either uh, by choice or age or circumstance, let me be clear this morning. A morning like Mother's Day is a great chance for us to celebrate moms, but hear this. Your beauty, your destiny, your usefulness to the kingdom, your femininity is not wrapped up in motherhood. Right? Motherhood is a grace and a gift, but it's not why God made you. God made you first and foremost so that you would know him and in knowing him, enjoy him. And so um, if if that's something that you're like, man, I want to be a mom someday because uh, that just hasn't been on the cards for you, um, that's a good thing to pursue and that's a good thing to want. And and if you want to be a mom someday and um, for whatever circumstance that hasn't happened for you or it's come through grief, it's come through loss, please know that that doesn't diminish the value or the longing or the desire for motherhood, but it does provide hope this morning, that, that our hope is uh, not in our ability to be moms or to, to enjoy our kids, but ultimately our hope is in Jesus, and our hope is in the fact that wherever we're at today, he loves us, he cares for us, and he has a purpose for us, and he knows the longing of our heart. And so I hope regardless of where you're at with that today, that that truth provides grace to you, and happy, happy Mother's Day um, to you moms. So As we come into Acts today, I was really wrestling with how to take this passage and make it a Mother's Day sermon, because basically what we're going to do is we're going to see Paul in prison. And I was thinking about the parallels here, and I was was just really... I was really wrestling with it, and I, I, thought, I started thinking about it, and I was just like, okay, Paul can't go anywhere. He's stuck in the same building day after day. He keeps saying the same thing to the same people over and over and over again. Nobody's listening to him. Most of his meals are probably eaten cold, and he doesn't get to eat them when he would prefer to eat them. And really what he wants to do, I mean, he's already told us this. He's, he just wants to get out of Dodge and go to Italy. And I was thinking about that, and I was just like, how does that relate to moms? 
So if y'all can help me maybe after the, the sermon today see some parallels, I'd really appreciate that. It was really hard to find some overlaps. Um, but <laughs> all joking aside, this isn't a Mother's Day sermon, but it is a, it is a sermon that will cause us as a people to think um, deeply and, and wonderfully about the truth of Scripture. And, and here's the deal, moms. That's the best Mother's Day sermon that we could have. If you can walk out of here and you can see um, what Jesus wants to say to you from the Scripture, and that can be an encouragement to your soul so that you continue to press in and, and fight the good fight and love and serve your family well, that's the best gift um, that I could give you this morning. So uh, be encouraged, mamas, be encouraged, church. Uh, that's where we're going to go today. So today what we're going to do, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 25, and we're going to look at the last defense or explanation, really, that Paul gives here in Acts and when everything is said and done today, uh, the result of looking at this is that we're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to talk about evangelism in the church. And odds are when you hear that, there's an immediate connotation that comes to mind. The moment that someone says the word evangelism, there are thoughts that come into your head about what that means. And, and sadly, for most of us in the church, it isn't a great one right? We don't hear that word and we go, oh yeah, I'm so glad we're talking about that this morning. That's like my favorite thing in the world. I literally was just hoping that we would get to talk about it today, right? Most of us, when we hear that, it provokes guilt for us because we're like, yeah, evangelism about that. Um, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, good. It's a good thing, right? For some of us, it's really off-putting because maybe we've seen people open up their mouth and, and get really passionate and really loud and really obnoxious about telling other people about Jesus, or maybe someone has done that to us, and we're like, dude, that's really off-putting. Like, I don't, I don't know if you understand, but that's not helpful here. Like, I remember being, being a college student walking around campus, and every campus, every, every college campus has the one guy who goes into the quad and, like, starts talking about Jesus loudly and openly, right? And you're just like, you're not winning anybody to the gospel, dude. Like, you're not. I, I, I am so grateful for your zeal, but stop. Like, please stop. Maybe that was just me. Um, I wasn't that guy, by the way. I was the guy who was walking by, like, don't talk to me, don't talk to me. Um, for some of us, it provokes fear, right? Like you're like, dude, I can't tell my barista at Starbucks my coffee order without getting nervous. Don't ask me to open up my mouth and tell someone else about Jesus. Like talking makes me scared. Like I'd be happy to live, um, you know, in a, in a quiet place and only interact with people at the, end, you know, the edge of my, my fingertips or my keyboard. Like please don't make me talk to anybody. Right? And, and for some of us, you're like, well, that's not my spiritual gift, so, you know, I'm not going to really focus on that. For some of us, we don't see what the challenge is here, but the truth is, church, we are all called to share the gospel. We're all called to share the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we're ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal to people who are broken and longing for an answer to their sin problem through us. The, the, uh, the appeal that God makes to this broken world happens as Christians open up their mouth and communicate the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. And Romans 10.14 says, how will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And really the word there is proclaiming. So church, it's our call, and, and it should be natural for us to want to share Jesus with others and, and to tell people about what he's done and what he's continuing to do in us. So let me be clear. 
This is not going to be a guilt you into feeling bad about sharing the gospel so you leave here and go and try really, really hard to do better message. This isn't going to be a um, make you feel bad that you haven't told your neighbor about Jesus in the last two years even though you've known him and you've passed by him every single day message. That's really not the point. In fact, I think that's really counterproductive. What I want us to see this morning from Acts chapter 25 is I want us to see how Paul shared the gospel. And in seeing how Paul shared the gospel, I want us to see what we can learn from that so that as we step out in obedience in those areas, we have a framework and an understanding of what that can look like. And then I want us to see ultimately how that all gives us hope and encouragement as believers, but specifically as moms today. So there's an immense amount of text that we would be trying to cover today if we were going to read through all of it, so we're not going to do that. But I want to start by setting up the stage, and then as we go through this, we'll, we'll jump in and we'll read specific parts of this passage. So just to set up the stage here a little bit, we know that Paul is here, but if he's going to share, he's got to have an audience, right? And that's the first aspect I want to see today about how to share the gospel, and that's that you have to know your audience. So take a look at chapter 25, verse 13 with me, and let's see who's Paul, who Paul's audience is here. It says, now some days had passed, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, and they greeted Festus. Okay, so you've got Paul, and you've got Agrippa the king, and you've got Bernice the queen, and you've got Festus, the Roman governor, and they're gathered in Caesarea. So that's the scene. Paul's been in Caesarea now for two years. Uh, when we were together a couple weeks ago, remember we talked about how Paul was before the, the Jewish council and the Roman tribune, saw that he was about to get... Um, you know, torn apart by this riotous crowd. So he goes with these, these hundreds of, of Roman soldiers and grabs Paul and takes him to Caesarea. So he's been there now for about two years. And uh, while he's there, the Roman governor Felix hears his case and goes, eh, I'm not really gonna make any decision about this. It's just a lot easier to just keep you in prison and ignore you, so he does. Festus comes into power. Festus hears him out and goes, I'm not really sure what the big deal is here, but all these Jews keep saying that you ought to die, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you back up to Jerusalem. And Paul goes, I'd like to solve the puzzle, Pat. And he says, why don't I just go to Caesar instead? Because he realizes the moment he leaves Caesarea and goes back up to Jerusalem, he's waiting for someone to jump out of the bushes and shank him, right? So he says, I'm just going to call a party foul on that, and I'm going to go to Rome instead. How does that sound? And the moment he does that, there's nothing that can be done except for Paul to get to Rome. And so that's what's going to happen for the rest of the, the book of Acts. But today, before he has an opportunity to go to Rome, he's going to get up in front of Agrippa and he's going to give this defense because he's already done it for Festus. So who's Agrippa? So who are Agrippa and, and Bernice? So Agrippa is the, um, he's the Roman appointed governor, king over Israel. Um, he's the son of Herod Agrippa. So if you remember back in, in uh, the earlier part of Acts, Herod Agrippa I killed James. And so this is that Herod Agrippa's son. And this, uh, this Herod Agrippa here, Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great, if you remember back in all of our Christmas stories, Herod's the one who wanted to go around and kill all the babies in, uh, in uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem and, Naz and Nazareth who were under the age of two. So great family. You really wanted to be friends with the Herods. Honestly, you did because otherwise they would just find a good reason to kill you. So this is not like a great situation for Paul to be hanging out in front of Agrippa. But here's the thing about Agrippa. 
Agrippa, for all of his family dynamics, for all of his faults, was actually incredibly well-versed in Old Testament Jewish theology and in history, according to to multiple historians. And so Festus looks at him, and, and basically what the conversation here in Acts 25 looks like is this. Festus goes, hey, Agrippa, here's the deal. You're a Jew. You understand this stuff. I have no idea why everybody is so mad at Paul. I've got to send this guy to Caesar. I have no idea what he's done wrong. Why don't you listen to him and just see what he has to say? And so Agrippa says, okay, I'd like to do that. I'd like to hear what he has to say. So go ahead and pick up with me here in verse 23, and we're going to see this scene unfold of how Paul begins to communicate with Agrippa. So it says in verse 23 this, it says, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who were present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after I've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So if you can imagine this scene here, you've got this raggedy Paul the prisoner who comes in, and you've got this massive parade of these highly decorated Roman governors and Jewish kings and military tribunes and noblemen of the city walking into this audience hall to hear what this guy Paul has to say. Paul knew that he was in front of an incredibly influential and powerful group of people. He was preaching to a packed house. But when it's finally Paul's turn to speak, I want you to notice who he speaks to. He's not speaking to the crowd. He could have chosen to address everybody in the room. But if you look in verses two and three, what he says is, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I make my defense. I beg you to listen to me patiently. Why point that out? Because you have to know your audience. Because you have to know your audience. In front of this group of Gentiles, Paul would have had to go through an incredible amount of ground just to help these pagan Romans understand the context of what he was saying. But he looked at Agrippa and said, you are so close. You're so close. You understand everything about our history. You understand everything about what the Jewish people know. 
this is not gonna be hard for you to connect the dots if you'll just listen. Please listen, Agrippa. Does that mean that Paul didn't care about the other people in the room? No, not at all. But Paul had a singular focus and mission in his proclamation. It was that Agrippa might hear. Paul knew exactly who he was speaking to. I believe Paul knew that if this man, Agrippa, who is a friend of Rome, but also the king over the Jews, if he could come to faith in Jesus, what would that mean for the Christian community? What would that mean for his Jewish brothers who he longed to have know Jesus, to have one of the most visible and powerful and notable people in all of Israel come to understand that the prophets proclaimed Christ when they were proclaiming the Messiah? Similarly, church, we have to understand that when it comes to sharing the gospel, we have an audience. We have an audience. Whether you believe it or not, you have an audience. Moms, your kids are watching you to see how the gospel impacts the way that you live. Dads, your kids are watching you. Your coworkers are watching you. You have an audience. You have to know your audience. You have to know that the moment that you have been singularly identified as a Christ follower, that people are paying attention to what you have to say. And when you get ready to open up your mouth and communicate about Jesus, you need to know exactly who you're talking to. But there's a caveat to knowing your audience, and it's also this. Your audience is not only the person who's sitting in front of you. Your Father in heaven is watching you as well. Now, for most people, you might hear that and go, well, that makes me a little bit nervous. Surely he's going to be embarrassed of anything I say. Maybe that's just me. Here's the deal. There brings no greater joy to your Father's heart than that you open up your mouth and tell others about the hope that he's given you. He's proud of you. When you open up and you share the gospel, he is with you to empower you and to guide you and to help you in all of your power and in all of your ability with his strength, with the, with the spirit that he provides you to proclaim Jesus boldly. We have to understand that we have an audience. We have to be conscious of where they're at before we share the gospel. And then we have to be mindful of the fact that our audience is both them and our Father in heaven who cares deeply about us. Um, a short example for you about knowing, knowing your audience. So Paul here, at least in this instance, understands that, that his audience is this man, this, this Agrippa, who understood the Jewish Old Testament. One of the first times I shared the gospel, I, was, I, I became a, a Christian when I was 15, and immediately I realized my best friend in the world was a dreadlocked, pot-smoking atheist who was trying to convince me to join him in doing these weird kind of meditations. So that was my life before I knew Jesus. And then, you know, this immediately became like this new thing. And so I remember sitting down with him. His name's Colby. We ended up sitting down at, at, Chick, at uh, Chick-fil-A. There wasn't even a Chick-fil-A at that point. Remember back in the day when like, if you wanted to get chicken, you had to go to KFC? Like, what did we do before Chick-fil-A? It's just insane to me, right? So we sat down at KFC on Highway 6 in Sugarland, and I remember looking at him, and I was just like, I want to tell you about Jesus, but the first thing I did is I said, help me understand what you believe. I don't want to understand what you believe. Help me understand what you believe, because I, I, I feel like my life has changed, but before I open up my mouth and I tell you about what Jesus means to me, I want to just understand where are you at. Did your family grow up in church? Have you ever been to a church before? What, what do you believe? And I remember sitting down with him and 
because I'm insane. I was just like, well, here's what we'll do. I want you to give me one of your books about meditation, and I want you to read Mere Christianity, and we'll just get together and we'll talk about it. Now, at 15, for anybody to be able to understand C.S. Lewis and be able to dialogue about it at all, I mean, your SAT score better be through the roof, right? I remember sitting there trying to read it and being like, um, he's saying big words that make sense. What do you think about that, Colby? Right? But here's the deal. The reason, the reason I say that is because what made sharing the gospel with him over the years so incredibly effective was that I sat down and I just tried to understand who he was, where he was coming from. I had to know my audience. And I, I'm guessing for many of you, um, unless God has just given you an incredible gift to be able to go into a room and be like, there's people in here who don't know Jesus, you, you know, and then communicate with them. Most of you have shared the gospel with people through relationship, where you know them, you understand where they're at, you understand their history, you understand their upbringing, and then you take the gospel and you apply it in a way that they would understand. Which actually leads us into the second thing I want us to see about how to share the gospel, and that's this. Two, you should find common ground and understand where they're coming from. What do I mean by that? Well, in verses uh, four through eight here, we're not going to read it, but Paul's basically going to look at Agrippa and he's going to say, hey, Agrippa, here's the deal. The first thing you need to know about me before I tell you anything else is that I'm a Pharisee and the reason that I'm on trial is because of the promise that God made to our fathers, the promise that was made to the 12 tribes. That's why I'm on trial. Now, to you and I, that may not mean anything, but to a Jew in Paul's day, that would have immediately helped them to find common ground. Because the moment that Paul says Agrippa, it's because of the hope and the promises that the God of our fathers made to the tribes that I'm on trial. Agrippa, as a Jew, would immediately go, I know those promises. I want those promises. I'm hopeful for those promises. Okay, Paul, you've got my attention. What is it that you want to tell me? What do you want to tell me? You're speaking my language now. You have hit on something that I understand. You are speaking in a way that helps me connect dots. Now you've got my attention. What is it that you want to tell me? For us, I think, church, one of the most central things to sharing our faith is finding common ground. I think one of the reasons that many of us don't tell others about Jesus is because of exactly what I said earlier. We think that we've got to like bust in the door and be like, I'm going to tell you about Jesus right now. Buckle up, buttercup. And you're like, I don't know how to do that. I don't want to do that. That feels really invasive. I'd probably be offended if someone did that. You know? Like if someone walked in and, you know, challenged you on your political views, like, boom, I'm going to talk to you about politics. You'd be like, hello, I wasn't ready for this. I don't want to talk about that right now. Right? The reality is that most of us can't and shouldn't just walk up to people and be like, hey, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and if you were to die today, you'd go to hell, and I want to tell you about the reason that you should trust in Jesus today. Like, that doesn't work for most of us. That would be intimidating. That would be hard. It would be off-putting for many people. But if we can come to people that we know out of relationship and we can help them connect the dots, then sharing the gospel because we found common ground becomes so much more helpful. Hey, you and I work together and, and you've told me a million times about how hard things are at home right now with your kids. I have kids too. Can I share with you about how God has changed the way that I parent? I'm not here to sell you on something today. I just want to tell you the reason that I have hope on hard days as a parent. And, and use that as a, a springboard. Hey, you're going through a really hard time in your marriage. Can, can, I, can I talk to you for a minute? I know what it's like to have hard times in my marriage. Here's what's helped me get through that. 
hey, I'm, I'm hearing you say that you feel really hopeless and nervous about your future. I know I feel that way sometimes as well, but here's ultimately why I'm hopeful. Can I share with you about the reason that I have hope in my future? Or someone could come up to you. I've had people come up to me before be like, dude, you're such a great guy. Be like, I'm really not. Please don't, please don't put that on me. I'm really not a good person. If there's any goodness in me, it's because of Jesus. But in those moments, be able to go, can I tell you why I act the way that I do? Can I share with you why I am the way that I am? It's not because I just wake up and roll out of bed in the morning and I'm like, I'm an amazing person. Everybody should follow me. I'm awesome, right? Most, most days I don't think that. Some days I do. Um, it's usually on vacation. Um, vacation Chris is a, is a good Chris. Um, so no, I mean, you, you find common ground with people. You find ways to interact with them to help them um, understand where you're coming from and help them connect the dots, right? Um, inevitably, church, most of the people I've shared the gospel with are people that I've built rapport with. And it's out of that that I've been able to be heard. And so the third thing I want us to see in sharing the gospel is this. Once, you've, once you have identified your audience, you know your audience, you've found common ground with them, you've understood where they're coming from, the third thing is this, share your story. And that's what Paul does here in verses 9 through 21. We're not going to read it, but basically the summary of it is this. He starts at the beginning and he says, here's the deal, Agrippa. I was a Pharisee. I punished people, I raged against the church, but then as I was on the road to Damascus, a light shone from heaven and it knocked me down and it was then in that moment that Jesus revealed to me who he is. And he gave me a new mission and he gave me a new hope and since then, my life has been about obeying and following Jesus. Here's what that looks like. And that's it. He tells his story. He says, this is where I was this is how I met Jesus. This is what life has looked like since then. Simple and straightforward. He didn't embellish it. He didn't make much of himself. He just said this, then this, then this. And listen, church, if you're in this room and you have trusted in Christ, you have a story to tell. You do. You have a story to tell. It may not be sexy. Like, bro, I was in a motorcycle gang and I worshiped Satan and I lit stuff on fire and then Jesus knocked me off my bike. It was amazing, right? That might not be your story. If it is, come talk to me later. I'd really like to hear it, right? Your story might be, hey, my parents raised me up in a Christian home. And before I had a chance to live a life of sin, it became apparent to me that even in my youth, my heart was still bent towards sin and towards selfish desires and not toward Jesus. And God in his mercy saved me. And here's the, here's the kicker. I don't feel like I've missed out because I didn't have a wild streak or I didn't go off to college and party, or I didn't do stupid things in high school with all my friends, and I didn't end up having this, this crazy conversion story. Like, that may be your story. And you can sit back and say, God has been so gracious to me. I'm so thankful that I haven't had to experience some of the heartaches that I've seen other friends and other people experience because they didn't have the opportunity to, to know and enjoy Jesus at a young age the way that I did. That's my story. Here's the deal. I'm no better off than you. Being a nine-year-old who throws a temper tantrum and being lost and dead in your sin is no less deserving of condemnation than the 50-year-old who has lived a life of unbelievable uncontrolled sin and in that moment comes to know Jesus. All of us have sinned and fallen short before the glory of God, right? 
I mean, for me, that, that wasn't my case. I wasn't the kid who grew up and, and, and just loved Jesus from an early age. I was fortunate, right? My brother trusted in Christ when he was a teenager, and I was, was a few years younger than him, right? Before, before my brother was saved, I was on a, on a very dark and, and dangerous path. I mean, my life was, I was depressed, I was angry, I was suicidal, I drank, I partied, I would steal, I would live according to whatever urges and desires that I had, and I would do my best to cover it up because all that I really wanted to, to do was rebel. I knew that. I knew that my heart was trying to do whatever I could to live a life that I wanted to live underneath the nose of my parents until I could be outside of their guidance and I could live full throttle sin, whatever I wanted to do. And as much as I could get away with until that point, I would. I hated going to church. It seemed stupid to me. The message of Jesus was a joke. My brother would, would get in the car the moment he trusted in Jesus and he would turn on Michael W. Smith on the way to church and I'd flip over and listen to Metallica because, you know, we gotta, you know, we gotta have some metal up in here, right? I mean, like, I just, anything that screamed of Jesus, I fought against tooth and nail. And then he and about five or six of his friends interrupted my life in a way that I couldn't avoid. And they begged and pleaded with me to stop. And I laughed at them. I was like, I, I don't want what you're selling. That's not for me. And patiently and consistently and faithfully over five to six months, they began to share Jesus with me more and more and more and more. And I remember in the middle of January, my sophomore year of high school, there was this event that, that our church did, and this guy got up and shared the gospel, and he didn't even give an altar call. You guys remember altar calls, right? Like, we didn't come down front and, you know, weep and cry and hug it out and, you know, whatever. Like, it was just sitting there, and, and we were singing a song after he had he'd preached and proclaimed the gospel. And in that moment, it clicked, and I was just like, I've been missing that. That, that makes sense now. I get it. I didn't go and like grab a bunch of people like, hey, what do I do? I just remember sitting there and, and in, this, in this pew by myself and just going, God, I don't know what that is, but I want that. that, that that's what I'm looking for. I want that. And I remember my life didn't change immediately afterward. I still fought the urge to rebel and sin. Old vices died pretty hard. But I remember waking up the next day and this feeling of angst and depression in my soul was gone in a way that I had never experienced in the last two to three years of my life up until that point. And I remember waking up and thinking, this feels different. Something is happening that's different. And I began to see that my urges and desires became less about what I could get away with and more wanting to do what pleased God so that I could enjoy him. And, and, and that, that was my story, right? Yours may not look like that, but God was working in my life. And the more that I pressed into that, the more he began to change my life and my heart wanted those things. Church, you have a story to tell. That was my life. And then I met God and then my life was different. And the things that I wanted were different. And the hope that I had was different. And you don't have to have it all together all the time. You don't ever have to say that you've never sinned. That doesn't mean that you aren't gonna be able to look at your life sometimes and go, man, I was a flaming hypocrite for all of 2016 or whatever your year was. Like, I said that I loved God, but if you look at my life, I didn't. 
I loved wine and beer. I loved money. I loved myself. I loved my aspirations. I loved my career. I pursued all of the things that would make me happy, and none of them were about Jesus. If that's not part of your story, I question whether or not you're living the Christian life, bro. We do not always walk in faithfulness, but God is always faithful to us. Amen? How many of you have been in that season and have heard the longing of your heart begin to express a desire for Jesus or have seen him call you in the midst of the darkness and say, have you had enough? Do you not remember the joy of walking with me? And in those moments go, oh, that's right. I missed it. You have a story to tell. If you have seen God be merciful to you, to forgive you, to love you, to draw you to himself, to draw you back to himself when you've fallen short. You have an incredible story to tell and you have hope to give to the world. God has given you that story so that you can use it to make much of him. But it's not just about your story, right? It's helpful for people to see and understand where you've been and where you're coming from, but you also have to present the message to him, right? That's the fourth thing I want us to see in sharing the gospel, and it's this. You have to present the gospel crystal clear. What do I mean by that? Take a look at chapter 26, verses 22 through 23 with me. Paul, at the end of telling his story, looks at Agrippa and says this. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, so that I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul presents the gospel message crystal clear. Jesus suffered, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, so that light would be proclaimed. This idea of light comes from Isaiah 49.6, where speaking of the Messiah, God says, I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. An idea of light is of salvation. So in other words, what Paul is saying here in Acts is, Jesus suffered, Jesus died, Jesus rose again so that people could be saved. That's the gospel message, crystal clear. Let me be clear with you, church, there isn't a magic formula of what to say to share the gospel with someone, but you have to communicate this truth, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could be saved crystal clear and simple, right? That's our hope. That's our hope. All of us have sinned, right? We all fall short of God's standard. If I gave every single one of us in this room a baseball and said, let's try to hit the North Pole, right? Like, some of you in here, like Paul Benitez, would throw the ball much further than all of us, but none of us are coming close to the North Pole, right? It doesn't matter. Our efforts, in whatever direction we run, will always fall short of the standard, And the Bible says the consequence of falling short and having sinned is that we deserve death. That's what our deeds have earned. But God, in his mercy, saw us in the midst of our predicament, and instead of sitting back and going, that stinks. No, he said, I'm going to send my son to take the punishment that you deserve upon himself. Jesus died in our place for our sin. And rising from the dead, he proved that death no longer had the final say and that he stands presently now and forevermore to intercede and offer forgiveness on behalf of anyone who would call upon him. That's the gospel. 
If you would trust in Jesus to save you from your sin, you can have eternal life and a right relationship with God both now and forevermore. You have to communicate that message. We have to be clear with people about that, church. We have to be clear with ourselves about it. Church, Jesus doesn't want people to come into this building. He doesn't want people to be more religious. He doesn't want people to sin less or try to be better. He's not asking people to give him their hearts or give him their lives. Jesus wants to take people who are spiritually dead and make them alive. He wants to drag you from the bottom of the lake and set you on shore and perform CPR to a dead heart and breathe life into you. That's our condition before Jesus. He doesn't want you to give him your heart. He wants to give you a heart that loves him. He doesn't want to have you give him your life. He says, you have no life to give me. I'm going to give you life. That's what Jesus wants. He wants to cancel people's debt and make them right with him. He doesn't want our actions, our attempts, our effort to be good. He wants you. He wants you to trust him and follow him and find satisfaction in him and wake up in the morning and go, no matter what happens today, my father in heaven loves me fiercely. And I will take that to the bank today because I don't know what's gonna happen the rest of the day, but good or bad, I'm secure. That's what we communicate. And the fifth and final thing is this. Once you've shared, you have to invite them to trust. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 25 through 29 with me. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a quarter. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul looks at Agrippa and says, Agrippa, I know you understand what the prophet said. I know you do. Believe. Connect the dots. This makes sense. Think about it. And Agrippa sees it. He knows what Paul is doing, right? He calls him out. He goes, are you trying to make me a Christian? And Paul doesn't apologize for it, does he? No, he says, I wish everybody who was listening to me would respond to this, except that they wouldn't have these chains around their wrists. Paul doesn't make an apology for it. If you open up your mouth and share about Jesus with someone, you have to invite them to trust. Ask them to place their hope and trust in Jesus. Ask them what's holding them up if they don't want to. And patiently bear with them and continue to invite them. My friend Richie used to ex explain it this way. He would say, what if I had four box seats to an Astros game later tonight? And you're my friend and I come up to you and I say, hey, guess what? I've got four box seats to the Astros game tonight. I'm going and I've got two friends who are going with me, but nobody's spoken for the fourth ticket. See you later. What would you be doing? You'd be chasing after him like, are you gonna invite me, bro? I wanna go. Please invite me to the game. I want unlimited hot dogs and popcorn and baseball, Richie. Invite me. Right? When you have something of value that you're communicating to someone and there's a need for them to respond, 
ask them. Ask them. You're not inviting someone to a miserable existence. You're inviting them to life. You have to invite them to trust. It's not your job to stir their heart or enable them to believe or to see the truth and respond in faith, but it is our delight and duty to invite them to place their trust in Jesus. So these five things are how Paul shared with Agrippa here and what we can learn from it. And in the book of Acts here, you know, Agrippa's not going to respond. Paul's going to go off to Rome, and that's where we'll be the next couple of weeks as we finish up the book of Acts. But I ultimately said that we'd come back around to how this gives us hope as Christians, and especially moms, and I'll be super simple and to the point here, and then we'll wrap it up. Church, there isn't a magic formula to share your faith or to share the gospel with someone. But if you have a story, if you have a story about what Jesus has done, the only difference between what Paul did here and what you may do for your kids your spouse, your coworkers, or your neighbors, the only difference is this, willingness. That's the only difference, willingness. You can be encouraged that you don't have to be a theologian in order to share the gospel. You don't have to have an answer to every question people may ask. You may get someone who asks you a question and you're like, that's a really good question. I have never thought about that before. But I really want to answer that question for you. Can I think about that and can we talk about this again next week? That's really important to me. Nine times out of ten, they're probably going to be okay with that. And then you go and find one of the men in the church here who loves apologetics, Brent, Brandon Dietrich, John, Scott Wingerter, myself, and go, hey, uh, I've got this, this guy who's got a question about the problem of evil, and I need an ontological argument for the existence of God. Can you help me out? And they just watch as the words come out of, of their mouth, and you're like, where did this come from? How do you know these things? This is amazing. I'm going to take copious notes here and then not understand anything you're saying. But that's great. Thank you. Really good, right? You can answer people's questions. I believe, church, I believe there's an answer for every hesitation or question someone could bring against the truth of the gospel. I believe there is. Patiently listen. Patiently discuss. And the point is this. There's, there's no way that we can walk away from the book of Acts and not recognize that the amazing work that God did to grow the church and to save people happened because men and women who had experienced Jesus and were being led by the Spirit opened up and shared the gospel with others and God was pleased to save others through it. That's our big takeaway from Acts, right? Why do we believe that God's desire to raise up the church and save people in Magnolia, the Woodlands, or Conroe would come through any other means? But it requires us being willing to join in the work. And here's a practical encouragement and hope for you mamas today. Um, being a mom is hard. Being a mom is hard. You'll have bad days. You won't reflect the character of Jesus. You won't make Pinterest-worthy dinners. It's truth. You're not going to be able to post a selfie on Instagram because it looks like you got three hours of sleep and your hair won't co cooperate. We, we don't have that problem in my household, but for you, I get it, right? <laughs> and it's a sweatpants day. It's not, it's not an Instagram day, okay? You won't be present. You're going to be short and snippy, but here's the deal. Each and every day, if you have trusted in Jesus, you are covered. Each and every day, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are covered are covered. And the greatest news that you could have this Mother's Day is that God in his infinite wisdom saw you at your very best and saw you at your very worst and said, that's my girl. I want to adopt her as my daughter. And he doesn't regret that decision for a moment. 
even on those days. Discussing the gospel as we're doing today and reminding us to share it with others, not just for you moms, but for all of us, is a reminder that we need to be reminded of the gospel as well, right? We need to be reminded of the gospel ourselves. We need to be reminded that God is still working on us and that there's a story to tell of how God has provided forgiveness and hope for us. So take heart. Take heart, mamas. Take heart, church. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of the forgiveness that Jesus grants so freely to us, both now and tomorrow. And then be bold and fearless to go to your kids, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, whoever God has put in your path as your audience, and share with them the hope that you have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, our prayer before we dug into your word this morning was that you would overflow in us. King Jesus, we want that. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you saturate us in our lives with your word so that when we exist, there's an overflow of the goodness and the hope and the mercy of Jesus that comes out of us so that our kids see it, our neighbors see it, our coworkers see it that you might use us to make much of Jesus, that you might use us to tell your story that you are doing inside of us, that you might allow us to be part of the work that you're doing to draw people to yourself. We wanna respond now in faith as people who can absolutely do this and as people who want to do this, to see others have the hope and the call that we've experienced as well. We respond now in faith through worship and through the taking of communion and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.